the humble person will say, you know what, I have struggles here and here and here and here. I need help. The prideful person doesn't want to admit any of that exists. And pride comes before the fall. And prideful people invite judgment into their lives, into their homes, onto their church. Welcome to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. It is a joy to have you listening today, and we pray that you will be encouraged, challenged, and motivated to live for God like never before. And now, with today's message, here's Pastor John Couch. Fathers, we come before you today. We don't take this day lightly, nor this opportunity to to drink deeply from your word. God, I pray that we would abandon everything right now for focusing on you, the true treasure. So, Father, I know that there, in the size of a room like today, that there perhaps are many that are struggling, have a lot of questions of why could a good God, why would a good God allow this suffering in my life? Father, we just pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand that your riches and glory are often through the road marked with suffering. So, Father, we just ask that You would stir in this place. That You would move. We pray for a divine work of the Holy Spirit today. We pray against the schemes of the enemy. His lies, His deceptions. Lord, we pray against that today, that we would simply walk in truth in humility. So Father, would You do a work? And for that to happen, You need to move me out of the way. So I pray that You'd hide me behind the shadows of the cross. And God, I pray Your Word would go forth. I pray Your Word would go forth in power. God, I pray that lives would never be the same again. But as You move, that our lives would forever be conformed to the image of Christ. So Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to You, my Lord, my Rock, and my Redeemer. And so do the work that only Your Word can do. And do it, do it now. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews. Next week, we will start a a new book study. I'm excited about it. But today, we're in one more standalone message from the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 3, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to verses 12 through 19. And as you're turning there, I saw a recent quote from Alistair Begg. He's a a popular radio teacher, a very good one. And he said this statement, which struck me. He said, if our Christianity costs us nothing, 
it's worth nothing, end quote. If our Christianity costs us nothing, it's worth nothing. We could argue from Scripture, whether it be Jesus or Paul or, yes, even Peter, that that premise holds true, that there's something about the life that has truly been given to Christ that there will be a great cost in that giving away. We often say that freedom is never free, but it costs dearly. And it never costs more dearly than on the cross of Jesus Christ. That as He shed His blood, as we just sang, that we have freedom, not freedom to sin, but we have freedom to live for Christ. You know, it's interesting, when I think about that thought, I was asking myself the question, is the life that I profess in Christ, is it costing me something? Ask yourself that question right now, is the the faith that you profess in Christ, is it costing you something? Maybe here's another way to ask it. What is God currently asking you to do that's requiring great faith in Him? Like, what is it today in your life and my life that God is saying, I want you to go do this. I want you to speak to this person. I want you to give away this money. I want you to live a life in this way for my glory, my praise, that it's costing you dearly. See, the message titled today in your notes is simply a question How's my heart? How's my heart? Not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. How's your heart today? In a spiritual sense, how's your heart? You know, it's easy in a physical sense as we grow older for the the arteries in our heart to get clogged. To grow callous, if you will. But I think we forget that in a spiritual sense, the same principle holds true. It's very easy over time through a life of apathy and indifference, of compromise spiritually, to begin to have a heart that is spiritually clogged. So often we pray about revival, and I'm all for revival. But we think about revival is when souls get shaken to the core. Revival happens that when those souls are shaken and a holy awe and reverence takes over that we begin to see us for who we are and we begin to see God for who He really is. And we begin to see God for who He is. How are your spiritual arteries today? Truthfully. Here in God's Word, the writer of Hebrews says it like this in chapter 3, verse 12 through 19. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil. We often say, check there. Unbelieving heart, check, I'm good. Leading you to fall away from the living God. We'll often just say, check, I'm good. Let's read further. 13, but exhort, very important word there, who? One another. How often? Every day. As long as it's called today. Why? That none of you, 
zero may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 14, for we have come to share in Christ. Don't miss that, church. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hmm. Look at the next phrase. As it is said today, if you hear His voice, if you hear His voice, church, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom, verse 17, was He provoked? Don't miss that. For how long? Forty years. Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient? Lastly, verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The book of Hebrews is debated on who wrote it. Some think Paul. Some think others. We won't stand on that today of who wrote it. It's God's Word. I think we could argue that the author definitely loved coffee because he brews. Amen? Bad preacher's joke. It's interesting when you think about the book of Hebrews, you see this great theme, and it's basically this, that Jesus is it, that He's superior, that anything other than Christ will leave you left standing and wanting and wanting, but Jesus really is our all in all. Amen, church? And when you think about that deep theological truth, you also see that the church He's writing to, those Hebrews there, they're going through suffering. And it's very tempting when we're suffering to walk away from the very thing that's our anchor. We were all amen. Jesus is our anchor. But when suffering hits, it's very tempting to walk away from the anchor. Here the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to the Mosaic law all throughout Hebrews. Jesus is your one. He's the one that when the veil was torn in two, we now have a direct shot to the Father. It's all through the righteous royal blood of Jesus. And then he comes into this beautiful thought in chapter 3. And 7 through 11, he gives a stern warning. Read it later. But there's a stern warning to defiance against God. He pulls from Psalm 95. He recounts the kids of Israel and their disobedience. And then he says these two words in the ESV, verse 12. He says, take care. Now, when you say take care in the English language, what do you typically mean? You leave the restaurant and you wave to your friend. You say, take care. What are you saying to that person? Well, you're typically saying, hey, uh, be good, be safe. Don't get in trouble. Behave like a Christian. Whatever you mean by that, it typically is something that you are blessing them, so to speak, aren't you? Take care. It's a good thing. 
It's very important, though, when you see this from the ESV in the original language, it actually means this, beware, be on your guard. Now, again, not a trick question, but who is the writer of Hebrews writing to? Well, he's writing to Hebrews, these professed believers, and he's telling them to beware. Let that sink in for a moment. He's writing to the believers to beware. To beware of what? We'll take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. Now, we could talk this morning and we could say, look, who's evil in the room? And probably no one would want to raise their hand. Who has a wicked heart? Probably no one would raise their hand, right? The reality, though, is me, you, all of us are tempted at some point in the journey to walk into the former self that we once were if we've given our lives to Christ. The temptation is always there. But when you see this from God's Word, He's saying, look, beware. Now, if someone said to you, beware today, hey, I want you to beware, what do you typically do? Well, you take a nap, right? You go to sleep. You just kind of put it in cruise control. I mean, that's what we typically do, right? Beware. Hey, beware, bridges out. Beware, dog behind fence. And you just kind of, you're casual. You let your guard down, right? Of course not. But now the antennas are up, aren't they? You are on high alert. You are looking everywhere you can. You're just, you're checking everything out going, wait a minute, I got to beware. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is pouring into these believers. He's saying, look, if you let your guard down, the enemy will jump over the fence. And how many times have we read about it? Have we lived it personally where we let our guard down and the enemy jumped over the fence? The writer says, look, I want you to beware. I made this note here. I said this. It's really difficult to spiritually beware, be on your guard, to take heed while in spiritual cruise control. Yes, we're under grace, but we're also under obedience. Saving grace produces heart transformation and a desire to be obedient to God. I've yet to encounter anyone not one person who truly is surrendered to the Lord and enjoys living in disobedience. The two are at war with one another. They're opposed. But it's so easy to do mental gymnastics in this intellectual profession of faith. Intellectually, we get this, don't we? It's, it's simple. I believe. I believe. The mental gymnastics, it's so easy to do this, but it's not real salvation. And I believe it's destroying the American church. The writer here says to beware. To be on your guard. When the writer uses this, he says brothers. The brothers there is referring to the brethren. And he's saying, look, I want you to beware in such a way that as you write down your key number one here, I pray that this will begin to cement and crystallize in your mind of what he's trying to say. And here's key number one. If we are not on our guard against sin, sin will stand guard over us. Key number one, write it down. If we are not on our guard against sin, sin will stand guard over us. The great Puritan John Owen said it like this, be killing sin or be killing you. 
It's just too easy to argue that we're not in a battle, which is total insanity. Yes, we've been saved. Yes, Jesus conquered the grave. But we're still in a battle. At least I'm in a battle. I know I'm in a battle every day. The enemy comes at me from every angle, and I'm warring against him through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word of truth. We are in a battle. If we are not crucifying and killing our flesh daily, our flesh will kill and crucify us. It's just too easy to bend and buckle and break with the flesh. It's too easy. My flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak. We must be a people that says, look, if, if I'm not on my guard against it, it will stand guard over me. Think about the kids of Israel. Just think about these guys and gals for a moment. They were in a constant, perpetual state of stupidity, if you will, right? There's a cycle of stupidity. Believe God, rebel against God. Believe God, rebel against God. And the cycle repeated and repeated, and we just read here from Hebrews, there were great consequences to their disobedience. They wandered on a map, when you look at it, in a fairly confined area, a whole bunch of people for a bunch of years because of their disobedience. When you think through that, I always think of Proverbs 26.11, which says, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Well, it's so easy to be blinded and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I've heard people even say this before. You you might talk with them and say, hey, I know you've been through a hard season of life. Maybe it was a financial issue. Maybe it was a relational collapse. Fill in the blank. Some tough challenge, health crisis. And you ask them, you say, well, what have you learned in the midst of this? What is God teaching you, present tense? And I've had people even say, I haven't learned anything. Huh? I mean, you just think about that statement. I haven't learned anything in the midst of the struggle. Mark 14, 38, write that down. Very important verse in this key number one. If we're not on our guard against sin, sin will stand guard over us. Mark 14, 38 says this, Jesus speaking, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Do you see that? Watch and pray. Like, be on your guard. You and I have to be on our guard. Where God is working, so is the enemy. If he's working in your life today, the enemy hates you. If he's working in your home, the enemy hates your home. If he's working in your church, if that's where God's working, the enemy hates your church. You got to realize the poison and the venom that Satan has for Jesus. He hates him. And those who live for Christ, Satan hates we got to understand this, that we got to watch and pray. There is effort that goes on, not for the salvation, but from the salvation. When we're really saved by faith through grace, Ephesians 2, we are done so for good works. That text goes on and says that we would live for Christ. You and I, we got to have our guards up everywhere, especially in the areas that you and I know we're weak. Your weakness may not be my weakness, and vice versa. But if our guards are not up, like right now as you're thinking about your weakness and I'm thinking about mine, you need to have a fortress built up everywhere in those weaknesses. Because if you don't, the enemy is going to jump over the fence. 
We've got to watch and pray. We've got to be on high alert. We are at a war. We are in a war right now spiritually. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We are wrestling today, on this day, against the hosts of darkness. Here's the great news. We serve the King of kings that on the third day, on the third day, He arose triumphantly from that grave. The grave is forever empty. We operate from a position of victory, not hoping, not wishing this is going to work out. We know our Redeemer lives. And because of that, because of that fact, we want to be on our guard. See, the humble person will say, you know what, I have struggles here and here and here and here. and I need help. The prideful person doesn't want to admit any of that exists. And pride comes before the fall. And prideful people invite judgment into their lives, into their homes, onto their church. Jesus says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. God, I can't do this. God, I can't live this life. But God, I know you can. God, why are you allowing this into my life? God, I've served you for all these years. I've given my life to you and my family to you. And God, why are you allowing this into my life? He's working. He's working out an eternal way to glory. That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed. I don't know about you, but that's what I live for. I'm not living for this life. I'm living for the next life with Jesus. How are the arteries in your spiritual heart today? Are they soft? Are they tender? Or is the reality they're calloused and hardened? The writer of Hebrews goes on and says this in verse 13. But exhort one another, how often, church? Every day. As long as it's called today. Why? That none of you, not one, that not one of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's go over this again in class. Who is he writing to? The believers. The professed believers. He's saying, look, If you are not on your guard, especially in the areas of weakness, what's going to happen is you're going to give in, you're going to bend, you're going to buckle, you're going to break. He says, be on your guard that none of you, as you exhort each other, will be hardened. See, the exhortation and the frequency of it has everything to do with being hardened or not by sin. That word exhortation, we often think of Kind of happy, sappy, right? Oh, how you doing? Here, let me put my arm around you. I want to encourage you. Well, that's part of it. But when you study that word in the original language, it also means it's to admonish. To come alongside, to iron sharpens iron, so to speak, to strengthen one another today. Urgency. Is there an urgency in your walk with Christ? Is there a desperation? 
Like, is there a desperation in your walk with Christ? I mean, you want to live for Him every moment of every day. You want to make a difference. All the stuff in this life that we put so much value on, you know, we fill our garages with junk, can't even get the door up. We put so much focus on this stuff of life, and in the end, it doesn't matter. What matters is the gospel. What matters is souls, that we would be a person, that we would be a family, that we might be a church that lives in desperation today. I mean today. That's my dream. That's my prayer, that we'd become a church that lives in desperation for the glory of God. We would live in desperation to be disciples that make disciples. Oh, I pray for a holy awe awakening and desperation. Because all we have is this moment. None of us are promised another moment. Think about this for a moment, that you would not be hardened. It means this, obstinate, rebellious, defiant, calloused. See, both physical arteries and spiritual arteries both harden over time. The writer says, warning, warning, don't allow your spiritual arteries to harden. How? Well, right there it is in verse 13, by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what sin does. It always over-promises and under-delivers. It's delusional. That's what the deceitfulness means. It's delusional. You could equate it to being tricked, swindled, seduced. Not just sexually, but that's what sin does. It seduces. There's a seduction to it. It always takes you farther than you ever wanted to go, as we say, right? Keeps you far longer than you ever wanted to stay and requires a price far greater than you ever wanted to pay. That's what sin does. The deceitfulness of it is so hardening in the spiritual arteries. And that's why key number two is so mission critical. This is a community effort, by the way. If you're living in isolation, you're a Lone Ranger Christian, and a Lone Ranger Christian typically is a dead Christian. Here it is, key number two, we must exhort each other to resist the allure of sin. We must exhort each other to resist the allure of sin. Here's a practical application. So find someone, man-to-man, woman-to-woman, not a spouse, in your marriage, although that's good, but find man, go find a man, woman, a woman, and I want us to have a true accountability partner. One that will hold us accountable, me accountable, you accountable. If you and I are resistant to having an accountability partner, that's a great sign of arteries, at least at a minimum, beginning to spiritually harden. It's not humble, it's prideful. I don't need anyone, I'm good. Right here, the writer says, be on your guard, be careful that none of you would be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. And so often it's easy to blame even our accountability partners, right? We get caught in sin, and instead of being humble and saying, you know what, I'm going to own this, this was my doing, we blame them for not holding us accountable. And on and on, the spiritual hot potato goes. I mean, what would happen? You you know, you go uh, on a trip, maybe you're going on a trip here this week, and you're in your car, and 
Sometimes you're in your vehicle and there's that thing called a blind spot, right? You happen to just move over in the next lane and sure enough, bump, oops. You run into the car next to you. And the officer comes on the scene and says, well, what happened? You say, well, it was my blind spot's fault. How's that going to go over? Oh, I'm, I'm glad you shared that with me, Pastor. I'll just let you go on your merry way. Well, that's not going to happen. We're so tempted to blame everybody else, and that's a sign of a heart that's hardening or hardened. We must own where we are, and it's so easy to get most angry and incensed when we talk about biblical humility. By the way, who gets most incensed? The humble people? Right. The prideful people? Well, we get most offended. Here's what happens. We get most offended And when we get most offended, that's actually a sign that something needs to change. When we start squirming around, it's like, oh, no, I don't want to go there. That's actually a warning sign that something needs to change. When you have an infection, what happens? Well, the infection, they got the splinter in the finger, and the finger, what happens? It gets swollen and starts to ooze and you look at it and go, hey, we'll just let it go, work itself out. Well, of course you don't. You prayerfully go to a doctor. You see someone, and the infection is a warning sign. It's saying there is something internally wrong. That's what happens with good, godly sorrow and guilt. When we don't have that in our lives and we're walking in pridefulness, not humility, we're, we're searing our conscience. And it's a place you don't want to go. The conscience gets seared. And so often I see people over the years, I've seen it for years now, we're in families, that families are a wreck. And so often the children aren't behaving. And not in every case, but in some cases, the children are actually imitating how the parents behave. You'd be surprised how perceptive kids are. When we're rebellious as adults, we're obstinate, we roll our eyes, we cluck. Oh, they pick up on this stuff. And they're just imitating mom and dad often. We must be careful that our hearts as believers are not being hardened. You're listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. All of Pastor Couch's messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. In addition, you can share your prayer requests with us via email. Our email address for prayer requests is prayer at thisdayministries.org. That's prayer at thisdayministries.org. And now, back to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch. J.C. Ryle said it like this, powerful quote. He said, sin will rarely present itself to us in its true color, saying, I am your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no, sin comes to us like Judas, with a kiss, with an outstretched hand, and flattering words, end quote. That's the deceitfulness of sin. It's just too easy to play games with God. And no matter how long you try to play the charade, at some point it will be exposed. 
By the way, in case you're wondering, selfishness, gossip, slander, undermining, bitterness, unforgiveness, envy, spiritual lukewarmness, these are not fruit of the Spirit, just in case you were wondering. So what does Paul say about this? Well, write down Ephesians chapter 4 in case you're wondering. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Remember, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. So Hebrews writer writing to professed believers saying, beware, be on your guard. Paul here writing to the church in Ephesus. Here's what he said. Chapter 4, Ephesians 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. How? Due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. They've given themselves over, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to do what? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed, I love that, to be renewed, how? In the spirit of your minds. And to put on, what? The new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you see that, church? See, the temptation, here's the temptation. The temptation is to go back to the old self. But for the true believer, we should look at the old self in disgust. Going, I don't want to ever be that man again. You're like, I don't ever want to be that woman again. I've been freed from that. I'm no longer going to walk in that darkness. I can now walk in freedom. But the temptation from the enemy is, come on back over. Come on back over. I'll put you back on the payroll. And Paul says here to the church in Ephesus, and he says to us, don't walk in the darkness. Walk in the light. For he that sets the one free is free indeed through the blood of Jesus. We put off the old, and we put on the new, walking in freedom. So what does verse 14 of Hebrews say? Well, he goes further into that freedom. The writer of Hebrews says this, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. Don't miss that. To share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is so mission critical. There are so many people. I've seen this for years now, year after year. People that say, I'm in for Jesus. You know it by now, church. Raise the hand, say the prayer, sign the card, do the cartwheel, get dunked, got the fire insurance, and we see it happen over and over. Timmy and Susie, parents say, you're going to get baptized. You're going to do this. Sounds like they really want to do this. They get made to do it. What happens is, sure enough, there's not true conversion there. Duh. And what happens? Everyone's scratching their heads why Timmy and Susie, 30 years later, aren't living for Jesus. When it's real, it will endure to the end. 
And you think through that thought process, and that's why our key number three is just that. Write this down. Key number three. True faith in Christ perseveres to the end. True faith in Christ perseveres to the end. So go back for a moment to the sharing in Christ. I want you to picture this. So when the writer of Hebrews says that you share in Christ, he's saying that you are a partaker with Christ. And it really goes deeper though, you actually identify with Him. So for the true believer, this isn't just an intellectual, mental gymnastics exercise. The preacher said, come forward, I signed that card. At some point, I'm going to get baptized. Everyone claps. We go home and have a nice meal. That's just not how this works. True faith is a total submission to the Lord. The people that have trouble submitting to others in this life have trouble submitting to Jesus. And when you begin to analyze this, you begin to see very clearly through this teaching that we share, we're partakers, we're identifying with Christ. And I love this phrase, If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It means this in the Greek, to keep secure. See, when it's real, it will be forever real. Question for me and you today. How are your spiritual arteries? Truthfully. Like, how are they? Is there a tenderness in your life? A humility, a coachability? Or is the reality there's a pridefulness, a callousness, a jadedness? That when the truth gets brought up, there's an undermining. There's a defiance, pushing against, warring against. Are your arteries clear and free-flowing spiritually? Or is the reality your spiritual arteries are clogged and hardened? When I think through that thought, I couldn't help but think of this note I made. I said this, the call to follow Christ is greater than the pain that the call brings. Let me say that again. The call to follow Christ is greater than the pain that the call brings. I think often people think that pastors just kind of float around and they drive around in cars that look like clouds. They got a big harp next to them in the car. Bonbons. Kumbaya. That's not the world I'm living in. I know this, the more that I want my life to look like Jesus, the more that I want my family to look like Jesus, and the more that I want the church that I pastor to look like Jesus, the more the enemy assaults. Constant pounding. Just pounding. Nonstop. So what do we do? Well, you fold up your tent and you go home, right? Take your marbles and your baseball bat and ball and go somewhere else, right? No. May you press on for Jesus. May you hunker down, don't you? The battle belongs to the Lord. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. 
That the power, that the dunamis of God would not be in us, but it's in Him. That lost and dying world who's so desperately hurting. Everywhere you go, they're hurting. They're looking for something. Anything to dull the pain and fill the void. And we have the answer. And His name is Jesus. And yet it's so easy to live a life of mediocrity for the Lord. To be partially in, which means we're totally out. Spurgeon said it well. He said these are the three effects of nearness to Jesus. Humility, happiness, and holiness. Isn't that good? Spurgeon said it so well. These are the three effects of nearness to Jesus. Humility, happiness, and holiness. See, for the true believer in Christ, the conversion, the rescue is real. Therefore, we die daily to self. We're longing to die daily. It's not something that we, oh, i got to go do this. We look to do it. We get up every morning going, I want to die to myself today. I want to kill the enemy of self. And we pursue a life of holiness, of obedience, of giving glory to God, and daily becoming a disciple of Christ. And yet, every week, it seems like we're reminded of one more spiritual tragedy. Just read this past week of another high-profile Christian leader, a writer, who came out and said, you know what? After all of this, I'm no longer a Christian. No longer a Christian. And here's what he said. He said, now my life, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, now my life is joyful. You know what that's called? That's called the deceitfulness of sin. I would argue this from Scripture that he was never saved to start off with because we're saved and sealed for the day of redemption. You say, how do you know? I'm glad you asked. Write this down, Ephesians chapter 1 this time, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Here it is. In Him we have obtained, I love this, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Did you catch that? In Him and His will, verse 12, so that, there's the two words, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the, what? Might be to the praise, I love this, of His glory. Did you catch this? In Him, here we go again, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. Here it is. And believed in Him, you were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then he goes a step further. He goes, yes, you're sealed. But he says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory? And all God's people said, isn't that good? That's good stuff there. That's rich. And when you've given your life to Christ, you are eternally secure. And oh, by the way, when you've given your life to Christ, you go back to Romans 6, 7, and 8. Do we go on sinning that grace may abound? Certainly not. Eternal security is not a license to sin. Eternal security is understanding how bad sin really is. And we want nothing to do with it. But we're sealed. We're guaranteed. 
we will persevere to the end for the one who's truly saved. For the one that it's a sham, it's a charade, it will last for a season. Sometimes I've seen this, it lasts literally for a lifetime. But in the end, it's going to be revealed. I was thinking of supporting Scripture. Write this down, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 10 through 13. Matthew 24, 10 through 13. Because not everyone who professes Christ is on the good soil. Not everyone who professes Christ is the good soil. Some are hard ground, rebellious, defiant, prideful. Some are the rocky soil and it looks good on the outside, but what happens? Uh Uh-oh, trouble comes. They recede it with joy. I'll raise the hand. I'll walk an aisle. Trouble comes. Wait a minute. I'm out of here. Maybe it's the thorn-infested soil. It's great. This is awesome. Oh, wait a minute. Cares of the world. Deceitfulness of riches. Boy, they look good. I'm out of here. The good soil endures forever. And that's why Matthew 24 says it like this. The Olivet Discourse, signs of the end of the age. And then what? Many, many, not, not some few, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the sinfulness, the lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. It'll be calloused. It'll be hardened. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. For you that are a true believer today, and I pray everyone is, but for the one that is a true believer today, let me read that one more time. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's so glorious. How are your spiritual arteries today? Truthfully, how are they? Because verse 15, as we prepare down the backside of this mountain, verse 15 of Hebrews says it like this. As it is said today, Psalm 95 again, quoting, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Church, hear me clearly on this. I say this with urgency, with love, with desperation. If you are hearing the Lord's voice today, right now, I plead with you. I plead with you. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Please, don't do this. Don't do this. You're destroying your own life. You're destroying your family. You're destroying everything that you go into. Please, I plead with you today. If you're hearing His voice, don't harden your hearts. You may wonder why there's such fervency. Well, key number four, I believe, tells us why. And here it is. If left unchecked, sin will lead to a hardened heart. And a hardened heart will lead to living in habitual sin. Key number four, if left unchecked, sin will lead to a hardened heart. And a hardened heart will lead to living in habitual sin. They they feed off each other. 
today, now, urgency. Can't wait for the future today. We can choose today. Everyone in the room today can choose today. You can't choose it for me and I can't choose it for you, but you can choose it. You can say, starting today, I'm going to live a life of humility. Starting today, I'm going to live a life that honors the Lord. Starting today, as for me and my house, we're going to serve Jesus. You can actually do that today. I can do this today if we want to. See, that's the response in this, to not harden our hearts, to to not be obstinate, to not be defiant, to not be disobedient, to not be stiff-necked in the rebellion. you got to remember this, that when that word rebellion is used there, as in the rebellion, think about that, as that's used, as in the rebellion, it means this, to provoke by being rebellious, to provoke by being disobedient. Don't miss that. We're going to come back to that here in just a moment. But what happens is the sin hardens our hearts. They feed off each other and there becomes this being desensitized. We see it all through our culture. Matter of fact, Isaiah says it like this. Isaiah 5, 20-21. Isaiah says, Woe to those. Like, beware is what he's saying. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe, beware to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. See, that's what pridefulness does. It makes us very calculating. We've got to undermine... We've got to be deceptive here, deceptive there. And we're now creating a culture of sin. Woe to those, the Bible says. Beware. Obadiah says it like this. Obadiah 1.3a. Obadiah 1.3a. The pride of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart, the pride of my heart, that's when we get deceived. It's a prideful heart. Not a humble heart. Amos 8.11 says it like this, Amos 8.11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of the hearing the words of the Lord. We are in a famine in our land today of the words of the Lord. What happened to thus saith the Lord? It's just so easy for the lines to get blurred, even in the Christian home. Well, we'll compromise here and we'll watch this garbage. Well, we'll compromise here and you know we'll, we'll do this and we'll do that. And we're making one slight compromise here and there, but it's always a slow fade into the bottomless pit called sin. Woe to us. Because 2 Chronicles warns us there. Chapter 30, verse 8. 2 Chronicles 38. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Oh, generational sin is real. But yield. Don't miss this. Yield yourselves to the Lord and come to His sanctuary, which He has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that His fierce anger may turn away from you. Did you catch this? Don't be stiff-necked as your dads were. What do you do? Yield. 
That's humility. God, here, take my life and let it be. Use it for your glory. I don't want to get to the end with regret. I want to live for Jesus all the days of my life should be every true believer's prayer. We turn from being rebellious. We have a heart that is not calloused and stony and hardened, but it's a heart of flesh. It's tender. And what happens is for the person that yields then, we will now serve. For the person who walks in humility, you can see it in their body language. I was talking with someone recently and Michael W. Smith, the the singer, walked into a room that this person was at and, and this is what this person told me as they sat there and witnessed this. They said these words, that humility precedes him. Powerful, isn't it? Just how we carry ourselves. See, a prideful person, you can see it all over their body. A humble person, you can see it all over their body. How are your spiritual arteries today? Are they tender? Or are they calloused? What does a spiritually hardened heart look like at the bottom of your notes? Well, from our text today, there's five things. Number one, here it is, rebellious. Number one, rebellious. Which, by the way, when you study Scripture, rebellion and witchcraft are equated. So if you're curious what God thinks of rebellion and having a rebellious heart, He looks at it as witchcraft. Not a good thing, in case you're wondering. Number two, deceived. Seduced, tricked. Number three, provoking, instigating, undermining, pushing against the gospel mission. Four, disobedient, refusing to submit. Don't tell me what to do. Five, unrepentant. Unrepentant. See, all of these things, rebellious, deceived, provoking, disobedient, unrepentant, are from the text we just studied today. And by the way, I and you, we can confess sin and still not repent from it. We can confess it all day long. But the proof is in the pudding when we turn from the sin. If you're here today and the Lord is speaking to your heart and the reality is that you have spiritual arteries that are hard and hardened and calloused, the best thing you can do today is turn from that and repent. Because all we do is confess it and leave here and continue in this perpetual state like the children of Israel did, a a cycle of stupidity. We will reap what we sow. I mean, what would happen in a home that did all those things? Think about your home. Imagine if your home is rebellious, deceived, provoking, disobedient, unrepentant. Maybe you're saying, that is my home. I mean, imagine if your home is that. What's going to happen in that home? Well, James 3 tells us this, verse 16, where selfishness and envy are, confusion and every evil thing will be there. Anytime you have someone who is selfish and the arteries of their spiritual heart are clogged, it's going to create confusion and evil where that person is. That's how this works. That's why we plead. I plead with me and I plead with you. Let's be a humble people. Let's love one another. Let's serve one another. This is what the mission of the gospel is all about. 
And yet what happens? Well, our takeaway question, I think, gives us the ultimate question in the end. Simply, how is my walk with the Lord? I mean, just answer that. How's your walk? How's my walk? Truthfully, not on Sunday morning, not on Monday night prayer gathering, not on Wednesday evening. How is your walk with the Lord? Is it alive or is it dead? It's one of the two. G.K. Chesterton said like this, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. The world out there is waiting to eat you for lunch if you're professing the name of Christ. And if your faith is dead, if it's not real, if the heart is calloused, if it's hardened, you're not going to be able to swim against the stream. You're going to bend, buckle, and break. You're going to hang around people who profess Christ but really don't know Him. They're going to drag you down even further. And I've seen this happen over and over and over throughout the years. Pastors, deacons, Sunday school teachers, you name it, all the above, who said they were in for Jesus, they really weren't, and they led droves of people off a cliff. How will you know what's false if you're not in the Word daily, mining the Scriptures, knowing what's real? You won't be able to identify. You will get swept away in the current. That's why the action step is so important. I will seek the Lord to reveal to me, not to someone else, but to me, to you individually, where my heart is hardened, and then repent. Action step. I will seek the Lord to reveal to me where my heart is hardened, where it's calloused, and then repent. I mean, who usually is the last person to realize their heart is hardened? Right? But the Holy Spirit can change me and change you today. It's not about behavior modification. That's adapting. Good manipulators adapt. Oh, she wants to hear this, I'll adapt. He wants to hear this, I'll adapt. No, this is heart transformation. This is heart rescue. This is the gospel. It's heart rescue. And yet so many people, I believe, are just walking in delusion. Psalm 139, 23-24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous or wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Is that your prayer today? That's my prayer. Search me, O God. Know my heart, O God. Try me, O God. Know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked, grievous way in me, O God, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Black could be said it well. When holy God draws near in true revival, people come under terrible conviction of sin. The outstanding feature of spiritual awakening has been the profound consciousness of the presence and the holiness of God. Oh, that you and I would repent from the things of the world that charm us most. Oh, that we'd fling ourselves at the foot of the old rugged cross and seek His holiness and His forgiveness. 
Because Trevin Wax said it well. Hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. Oh, Father, we come before You today. Father, my heart is burdened. Father, don't allow us to walk in delusion, deceitfulness of sin. Don't allow our hearts to be hardened. Don't allow us to be people that think we deserve heaven. Help us to understand the biblical truth that the reality is we deserve hell. And God, what a humility that one statement will bring. Oh God, free us from the pridefulness of our hearts. Free us, oh God. Move in power today. Stir. Do the convicting heart surgery that only You can do. Don't give us a spiritual bypass. Oh God, give us a spiritual heart transplant today. Gotta pray we would not get into the parking lot and we're just thinking about what's for lunch. Gotta pray you would move. Holy Spirit, will you move in power? Do the work that only you can do as we humbly and joyfully submit to you. Let me pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. You've been listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. Don't forget that all of these messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. That's thisdayministries.org. In addition, if you have been blessed by the teaching of God's Word during This Day in the Word, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is info at thisdayministries.org. Thanks again for listening as we strive to honor Christ and impact our world as we spend this day in the Word.